Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, please subscribe, like us, and tell your friends about our show. So in 2004, the Pew Research Center poll found that Americans opposed same-sex marriage 60% to 31%. That was the same year that Republicans put anti-gay marriage questions on the general election ballot in 11 states. They all passed with an average of 70%. In fact, I was running for Congress in a swing state, a little state called New Hampshire that year. And I can tell you that whatever my own personal views, I was certainly wary of the issue because we all saw it as political dynamite. But I think we all know what happened next. A series of legal rulings, cultural shifts, prominent gay figures in entertainment becoming wildly popular and growing advocacy changed the entire tenor of the debate. By 2019, Pew polling on that same question of what we now call marriage equality had totally flipped. 61% of Americans supported same-sex marriage, while only 31% opposed it. Along the way, we saw a president evolve, institutions from businesses to the military follow suit, and eventually the Supreme Court declare same-sex marriage the law of the land. In many ways, this represented the most rapid and profound change in American attitudes on any social issue since we had any measurements of American attitudes. So how did this happen? How did we get from what was largely viewed as a fringe cause from the first same-sex marriage license application on record, which was filed in 1970, to where we are today. Our guest is going to answer some of those questions. He's Sasha Eisenberg. He's one of the most insightful and widely read journalists in America, especially when it comes to dissecting what's happening behind the curtain in American politics. He's the author of the book, The Sushi Economy, and the blockbuster 2013 book, The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns, which may be the single best book ever written for a popular audience about what really happens in American campaigns, and a book I really could have used when I ran for the United States Senate in 2010. And now he's written The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage, a fascinating look behind the scenes of both sides in the marriage equality fight. He's here to tell us all about it. Sasha Eisenberg, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. So let's start with with, with, um, the overview. What inspired you to write this book? Because this isn't just a book about the marriage fight per se. It's really a broader look at how social, legal, and political campaigns form and operate. So was it the specific issue of marriage that interested you? uh, or, Or the larger question of how activists accomplish big societal shifts or or both or none of the above i mean it was it was really the issue of marriage that that drew me into this and i think only once i was deep in it did i sort of realize the extent to which this may be valuable as a sort of parable or case study in in sort of broader questions of opinion change of, of social movements the thing that drew me to this initially was, you know, it was at a point about midway between the 2004 period that you mentioned and and where we are today as a country. And in 2011, I was reporting uh, that book you mentioned, The Victory Lab, about about political campaigns. I was spending a lot of time talking to pollsters or people who dealt in, in some form or another with, with measuring political opinions. And 
over and over again, they would say to me I'd never that they'd never seen opinion move on a single issue the way they'd moved on marriage. And I'd spent enough time writing about campaigns to understand how difficult persuasion was, sustained persuasion. And certainly this was the type of issue on which we were ex we would come to expect not a lot of movement. Sure. Ideas are grounded in, in you know, religion, ideas about tradition. For example, you know, since Roe v. Wade almost 50 years ago, aggregate opinions on abortion have, have barely budged. So the fact that people were moving four to five percentage points per year towards marriage across demographic categories was pretty remarkable. And that just sort of struck me as this interesting puzzle. And we were already starting to talk about this as the kind of defining civil rights movement of my time and of my generation. I'd covered politics through most of it. And, you know, I think as you sort of point to, Paul, like, I had no idea how we got from wherever there was, how this emerged as the dominant sort of social cultural issue of, of, of my lifetime, how we got from the point in 2004 where we assumed that this played only one way to even in 2012, when we, when people thought that, you know, Barack Obama had evolved out of convenience, that it was opportunistic for him to have done that. And so I set out basically to try to tell, you know, the whole arc of the story of marriage. And, and then, you know, by the end of it, I think I did come to realize that there were lessons in it for other movements, but I, I didn't go into it that way. You write, among gays and lesbians in the 1970s, marriage was an issue for mavericks. In the 1980s, it became one for theorists. Only in the 1990s did it become one for activists committed to plotting social and political change. First of all, wow, so well-written. Great, great set of sentences. So what was the state of this issue when you pick up the story in your book? Help, help us set the stage for everyone about what got us to this period that you examined most intensively in the book. So the book basically starts in 1990 in Honolulu, Hawaii. And I'll tell you in a second what sort of happens there that, that, that launches this into, into something that, that becomes a dominant issue nationwide. But at that point, there is not a single gay rights organization in the United States that has defined marriage as a goal, has endorsed marriage as an objective. There is barely a politician in the United States who's ever been asked for his or her opinion about it. There are, there's a sort of ascendant religious right that is trying to stop gays and lesbians from full, you know, acquiring full citizenship in all sorts of other areas of American life, but they are not trying to stop gays and lesbians from marrying because there is no active effort underway to win marriage rights. And so there is this kind of abstract debate for theorists about whether marriage is worth fighting for, but, you know, among mostly lawyers, uh, legal scholars in the gay and lesbian community, but it's very abstract because there's not an active court case anywhere in the United States on this. And so the book, the story in Hawaii is of this local activist, this guy, Bill Woods, who was like the gay activist in, in Honolulu in the 70s and 80s, incredibly entrepreneurial. He started the Gay Community Center, the gay newspaper, had the first gay radio show, not terribly good at working in sort of coalition with other people, but good at getting, starting things up and getting attention for his projects. And he ends up in this unbelievably petty fight for control of a pride planning committee with uh, a pair of lesbians who've launched a magazine that is now competing with his gay community news for you can only imagine is the large pool of advertisers in, in Honolulu in 1989 who want to be in gay publications. And he wants a parade as part of the pride festivities. Their committee is just focused on putting on a picnic and a uh, vigil. And so he wants to have a parade. They give him, this is every horrible event planning experience you've been, you've been part of. They tell him he can have a subcommittee to explore the parade. He goes out, he calls other cities, gets all this information about how they put on parades, 
puts it in a report. They say, no, we still don't want to have a parade. So he starts his own pride parade and rally council. And he's now looking for everything he could possibly do to upstage the picnic. And so he gets the Royal Hawaiian Jazz Band to perform. He invites the governor to be his grand marshal. He gets a friend who's a chef and caterer to have an international food festival. And he decides that at the rally, at the end of the parade route, he's going to put on a sort of Mooney-style mass wedding where a couple dozen couples who would exchange these symbolic holy union vows at the Metropolitan Community Church, a sort of non-denominational gay-friendly church that had a location in Hawaii, that they would get on stage in tuxedos and wedding dresses and, and go through a ceremony as just sort of a spectacle. And he wasn't a lawyer. Bill Woods was not a lawyer. He misread the state's marriage law. It's pretty clear to me. Came away with the misguided impression that actually the state might have to recognize these couples if they exchange vows on stage. And he went to the state affiliate of the ACLU and asked them to back him up. And for a year, they basically string him along, basically hoping he'll get distracted and move on to something else. Pride month comes and goes. He doesn't have the wedding ceremony, but now he's really offended that the ACLU has disrespected him. And on December 17th, 1990, he leads three couples into the Hawaii Department of Public Health as a PR stunt. And his idea is that he will then, you know, lead the media, the media will see these couples request marriage licenses. He'll lead them back to the ACLU offices. And this organization, which says that it's committed to fighting for the rights of gays and lesbians will not, you know, he'll jam them. The ACLU won't possibly be able to say no once they're actual people and cameras in front of them asking for help. And they still don't want anything to do with this. And so the next month, he, these three couples get handed to a local civil rights attorney in, in Honolulu. He sues the state in May of 1991. And to the shock of everybody, two years later, the Hawaii Supreme Court becomes the first court on earth to rule that the fundamental right to marriage could extend to same-sex couples. And that's what makes this wow. a political issue in, in the way that we think of it. And makes this something eventually that, that folks in Washington and in other state capitals have to address. So, I mean, it sounds like that the, this, this was a landmark decision, clearly. I mean, the first, the first state in America to recognize the right of gay people uh, to marry. That's, that's, that's a huge deal. But it sounds like that what you found that there was more a collection of quirks and coincidences and social shifts that came together rather than a real concerted effort, long range planned strategy to legitimize gay marriage more broadly. That's absolutely right. You know, I, I, I read all these books, you know, over the years, the, the great books about the path to the Brown v. Board decision or Roe v. Wade. Sure. And, you know, the, the, the Brown v. Board books like start 30, 40 years earlier where Thurgood Marshall and Nathan Margold are like plotting a strategy to right. incrementally right. build these cases so that yeah. they get presence in the Supreme Court. They start at Howard University Law School so that they have lawyers who can file these cases. And I started researching this book, assuming that there had to be somebody 40 years ago who had a plan. And there wasn't. There was a, a you know, a sort of impulsive activist being pushed by tactics and petty grievances and a bunch of really fluky things that happen on the Hawaii Supreme Court where one judge dies, another one hits the retirement age, a judge that is, is named to replace one of them has to recuse himself because he heard this on, on, on in a lower court. And so, you know, over a couple of weeks, the 60% of the Hawaii Supreme Court turns over, the average age drops 25 years. And 
this this isn't the story that we're supposed to tell about how sort of like a know, movement a movement a movement begins yes yeah there's no there's no moment at the beginning where we're at seneca falls and the great minds come together and sort of lay out their vision of this we we as a country sort of stumbled into this conflict and and in certain ways it was the opponents of of gay marriage who did more to elevate this into a national issue than supporters of it That's actually i want to pick up right on that thread yeah there there is this kind of fascinating thread of political physics in your book there's this notion that every political action has sort of an equal and opposite reaction and it, there's this very strong intimation that in many ways there was this initial hawaii decision you you start the book in the introduction around the decision by then president bill clinton whether or not to back the defense of marriage act so there was some activity there was some momentum going on in the 90s. But it seems like really what, what catalyzed what we saw in the 2000s, what sustained it was the activity of opponents. Is it the case that by engaging on this issue, conservatives took something that was dormant, that gay activists, as you say, saw as a far off pipe dream and essentially created the outcome that they most feared? I mean, it seems like a sort of Greek tragedy, Voldemort makes Harry Potter the chosen one type deal. Is that what happened? Yes. And I think in two important ways. One, by latching onto this issue, while, you know, while the gay rights movement was by no means unified on this, by latching onto it first, their opponents unified a gay rights movement that was not invested in this. I write a lot about the sort of internal philosophical debates, theoretical debates in, in, in the gay and lesbian community in the 80s. And there was a real principled opposition to fighting for marriage, you know, particularly among feminists who had sort of been conditioned to see marriage as an institution that, that, that fundamentally, you know, existed to, to, to subjugate women. And, you know, mm. they thought of this less as lesbians and as, as feminists. They said, why would we basically waste our political capital trying to win acceptance into this institution that's not that's built to hurt us and then you see you know by the mid-1990s led by the mormon church you know a whole sort of cluster of religious activists have decided this is the area that they're going to fight the gay rights movement on that they are most concerned not about gays and lesbians being covered or hate crimes laws or getting non-discrimination protections in local government or you know funding for hiv aids that they are most afraid that gays and lesbians are going to get married. And what that does is all of these internal divides within the gay rights movement basically disappear overnight and folks become unified. That's the first big strategic mistake is that like, if your opponents are divided, don't give them a reason to come together. And then the other big strategic error takes a while to see, I think the effect of this is that opponents of gay marriage raise the level at which this, this, issue can be handled and change the playing field. This starts as an issue for the Hawaii judiciary. And it's the Mormons initially in coalition with Catholics in Hawaii who decided they're going to try to bring the legislature into this to amend the constitution, to take this out of the court's hands. And then once it gets to the mainland, they decide they want Congress involved in this. And the Defense of Marriage Act is the thing that brings Bill, puts this on Bill Clinton's desk, where they assume we're going to write, take this, what had been a state issue, and make it a national issue, write it into the federal. And then eight years later, in 2004, the period that Paul was talking about, they decided we're going to take what had been a, a, a federal statutory issue, and we're going to try to write it into the Constitution. And at each point, they push this up to a, a, a sort of place where they can no longer control the fight. 
And the, the only reason this can be ultimately settled by nine people in robes in Washington is because opponents of gay marriage made it a federal question. Otherwise, this would have had its own trajectory in Hawaii. And, you know, 25 years later, maybe we'd have a handful of states that had gotten there, but there would have been no national resolution if gay marriage opponents hadn't decided to, to write this into the federal laws to begin with. And the Mormon church was, was a big driver in that effort through the 2000s. Yeah, so, so the Mormon church was basically the first mainland institution of any consequence to recognize the landmark decision in Hawaii. They'd had historic, a historic presence in Hawaii dating back to missionary work in the Pacific in the 19th century. They're politically connected there in a way that they're not in certainly many Eastern states. Mm. And they decide early on that they want to do a few things. One, starting in 1994, amend Utah law to make clear Utah is not going to recognize gay marriages from any other state. Two, they create this, you know, basically a front organization in Hawaii with the Catholic church sort of being the face of it to try to eventually amend the state constitution to take this out of the court's hands. And then the third thing they do is they begin to network with other religious denominations on the mainland, not just Catholics, but eventually get evangelical Protestants, you know, with whom obviously they have huge doctrinal differences, but, but a lot of shared political goals to take hold of this. And that's what eventually creates the Defense of Marriage Act is, is, is activism by, by evangelical Protestants on this. And then the, the, the Mormons sort of drift away from this issue for some time. I think that the, the controversies around the Salt Lake City Olympics in 2002 and Mitt Romney's candidacy for president, basically there's a, a better part of a decade where the LDS church decides that it wants to keep a lower profile in politics so as not to interfere with these kind of big media moments for, for the church. And they get pulled back to it in 2008 with the Proposition 8 Amendment in California when it qualifies for the ballot and they're basically told by, by Catholic church leadership, you know, we need help on this. And it's the Mormons who come in with money and manpower that, that basically help save the day in California. So just before our break, uh, I asked a question and I'll just repeat a piece of it, uh, which was we we're talking about the arc of the gay rights movement in America, but there's some sense that maybe gay marriage wasn't even the right or most pressing issue for gay rights activists. So, Sasha, what was the right issue for gay rights activists to pursue? And, and if, if, if you, for whatever you were about to tell us, how did it morph into gay, gay marriage instead of the right issue? Yeah, so let me take you back 25 years. So there's a day, September 10th, 1996, when the U.S. Senate votes on two bills right in sequence. The first is the Defense of Marriage Act, which basically was designed to insulate every other government in the United States from having to recognize gay marriages that came out of Hawaii by telling states that they didn't have to recognize them and then saying that under federal law, marriage would be between only a man and a woman. That passed the Senate 85 votes to 14. You know, all Republicans and a majority of Democrats voted for it. It was never close. It was never competitive. Bill Clinton signed it into law 10 days later. The other bill that was voted on that day was the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. And this would have included sexual orientation in the list of categories that are covered under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 with race and sex and religion as the categories under which employers are prohibited from making decisions about hiring and firing. And, and, and that bill failed 49 votes to 50. The 50th vote, which would have been Senator David Pryor, he was stuck in Little Rock at his son Mark's bedside, significant medical procedure that day. And Pryor would have voted 
for this bill. And so it was a very bittersweet moment for gay rights activists. They had come, this bill had already passed the House, sorry, this, this bill had, you know, DOMA had passed the House, was going on to the president's desk. This bill came one vote away from, from passing the Senate. And there was a clear idea that if they came back next year, they would be able to pass this into law. We're now 25 years later this fall. Not only has the Defense of Marriage Act been struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional, marriage, as you said, was the, is the law of the land in 50 states in the District of Columbia, and there is no active effort to, to take away the right to marry from gays and lesbians. It is safe. 25 years later, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act never passed. Its successor bill, the Equality Act, which is a more expansive version of this, still hasn't come up for a vote in the Senate. And so if you had told anybody in gay and lesbian politics in, in 1996, you know, game out the future of these two issues, they would have said the non-discrimination stuff is the low-hanging fruit. They had specifically picked employment and not housing or education because it pulled the best. There was, you know, it, the research sort of showed that like straight folks kind of thought everybody had a right to a job. They didn't necessarily want to be forced to rent out their a room in their house to, to a gay or lesbian, but they didn't think you should be able to take a job away from them. That seemed like the low hanging fruit and marriage seemed like the biggest possible reach for a gold ring that you could imagine. And so it is everybody involved in this issue is sort of confused by how much the sequence of events got inverted. The argument that you hear from people who, who think this was the wrong decision suggest that like there are basic material concerns, especially for people, and I think it's 13 states that still allow you to be, you know, still allow discrimination against gays and lesbians that, you know, as they like to say that you can get, now you can get married on a Sunday, get fired, go to your office on Monday and put up the, your wedding pictures and get fired because of it. And that seems like a, you know, as though like the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is not being satisfied if, if, if that situation persists. The argument that's made by people who think that this was the, you know, a healthy sequence of events is, is the argument that gay marriage was from a public persuasion perspective, the best issue to lead on, because it is not a technical legal issue. You don't have to understand the nature of civil rights law in the United States. You all you need, it was fundamentally, you were never going to have a breakthrough for gays and lesbians politically until you were able to introduce the American people to what made them different. And that is fundamentally their relationships. And marriage was an issue that because it was so relatable, so familiar, that it helped open doors in terms of changing public opinion for gays and lesbians in ways that has and will bear fruit in some of these other policy areas. But this is really an active debate. And, you know, we, we might look differently on it if something like the Equality Act becomes law soon. I think then people might credit some of the public opinion change that was sort of triggered by non-marriage. Let, let me just follow up because, I mean, I, I find this a, a total head scratch, okay? I mean, I'm, I, if, I, if I had more hair left, I'd be pulling it out, um, trying to figure out the, the logic or the rationale or the, the thinking that, that, that gay people can, can marry, but and they and, and gay people suffer discrimination regularly throughout the United States. Yet uh, here we are with a Democratic president, a slim Democratic majority, and we haven't dealt with the this this, this fundamental issue. 
about dis of discrimination. It's just it's a total head scratch for me. Yeah, I mean, there's so there are a few things that, that have sort of changed this dynamic. One is, and, and a lot of this happened when you were in the House, as I recall it, Paul, was there was Democrats had a chance in 2009 to pass an early, a more you know, an earlier version of the Equality Act, and there's a real tension about whether if it had not included transgender people, if not included gender identity as a category, it would have passed them and signed into law by Obama. Mm -hmm. Right. There was there were gay and lesbian activists who held out and said we cannot leave our trans brothers and sisters behind, and if we vote for this without covering just sexual orientation and not gender identity, it would it would sort of ratify discrimination against them. And the this was a huge source of tension between Barney Frank and some activists, you know, arguing between let's get what we can and then go back and get more later versus this will be problematic. And so some of it was that, that the Democrats made a decision in, in 2009 not to have a, a non-trans inclusive version of this passed. The other thing that happened was the Supreme Court in 2015 you know, the Obergefell decision, you know, remarkable landmark case that struck down state bans on gay marriage. Uh, but ultimately the way, and a very moving decision in many respects that Anthony Kennedy wrote, you know, I have like a postcard and a mug that people have given me as gifts that have, you know, quotes from, from the opinion on it. You can go on Etsy and find all sorts of merchandise with, this often doesn't happen, you know, for- Anthony Kennedy bobblehead doll? Yes. You know, I guess we're in a moment of like the cult of the Supreme Court justice, but you usually do not get quotes from Supreme Court opinions on, on, on Etsy merchandise. But it was in certain respects a very narrow decision. And he decided to rule on this as a marriage case, basically, and not as a gay rights case. And there's a sort of way in which, you know, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that it had basically said that had she written the majority in Obergefell, she would have written it in a way that included much more broadly, that yeah. would have included yeah. sexual orientation and maybe gender identity as categories on which you can't discriminate under civil mm -hmm. rights law or under which discrimination becomes very difficult. And had that been the case, then this would have sort of heralded a much you know, broader set of, of, of legal rights for, for people who've been excluded. Well, I want to broaden out the point that you were just making a little bit, because that time frame, 2009, is really, it, it, it feels to me, in my memory, as kind of a crossroads. You mentioned at the top of the show that this was around the time period that you became interested in this issue. There was an awful lot going on. Paul, you were in the House. You remember some of this sure. discussion on, on a legislative front. Now, yeah. uh, right, in your book that in 2005, there was a group of political operatives and litigators who convened and they set forward a, a, a confidential document that would guide themselves, sort of like a, a, a treatise, a goal set. And they, they outlined a path toward the Supreme Court affirming what they called the freedom to marry. And they set a goal of 2025. That was the trajectory that they thought they were on. And they now, thought that, that was optimistic at the time. That and was optimistic. a controversial, bold goal to set. Yeah. Well, bold goal. And so at the time, I mean, just it, it's so weird now, not that long later, but to put ourselves back in that mindset, it was sort of like a weird time, sort of like the period in human evolution where there were many different species of humans. There were many different species of laws going on. There were civil unions. There were domestic partnerships. In some states, there were marriages. My rabbi at the time quipped that she and her wife had previously been unionized, civilized, and domesticated, <laughs> but had never been married. So it, it seems like this was just sort of this fraught moment. I even remember, Paul, talking to another member of your staff 
and he's a, a gay man and we're both kind of in the political strategy realm and we were debating are we on a good path here should should this sort of be a plateau that we achieve let america catch up get used to this see more friends and neighbors with civil unions see that this is non-threatening and then push on that trajectory that you outlined sasha 2025 maybe that's a bold goal you know, no, you have to push all the way toward marriage right now. So was there something that happened in this time period where it seems like it could have gone any way? Was there a tipping point that set us on the trajectory to where we are now with full marriage equality? Yeah. And I should say in 2005, 2006, 2007, you know, there was one state in the country that that, that, that allowed gays and lesbians to marry. That was Massachusetts. And there was a, a, real fear among gay and lesbian activists that that could be undone that you know there were several efforts through constitutional conventions in in boston to introduce an amendment that would ban same-sex marriage in the state and it wasn't until deval patrick came into office in 2007 it became clear that there wasn't going to be a, a path anytime soon but up until that point there was a possibility that we could look that that marriage would have existed for three or four years in, in, in Massachusetts. It would have been undone by political backlash. And maybe we would look upon this period the way we look back at reconstruction, which is like a brief flowering of a new right and then a political backlash that undoes it. And, there, and then there was a real fear that Massachusetts would be the only state for a while and that that would invite, it, it would put too much pressure on legislators and courts in Massachusetts if they were the focal point of opposition around the country to try to undo this. And so it was a big boost to the movement when, when the uh, court in Connecticut in 2008, briefly in California in 2008, Iowa in 2009, Vermont that year, when you start to have some critical mass of states and, and, and it wasn't all about Massachusetts. And a few things happened in that period that are really important. After the Proposition 8 defeat in California, there was real sort of re-examination among gay and lesbian activists about how they're running these campaigns. Up until 2008, basically every time this came to the ballot, the gay marriage side was outmatched in terms of resources and always had a kind of a ready-made set of excuses as to why they lost. It was a bad state. It was a bad year. California, marriage was already legal. It had come down from the courts earlier in 2008. So it was undoing something that had already been granted. It wasn't just stopping something that could happen. And it, obviously a democratic state with a, a very experienced pol gay political apparatus the entire political leadership of the state, not just Democratic officials, but Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Republican governor, opposed Proposition 8. Barack Obama was on the ballot the day that this law passed, and they had more money than their opponents. And so afterwards, there was this real re-examination that's like, we can't just sort of shrug this off as we were due to lose this. Like, we lost this because we were running a bad campaign. And so you have this real period that I get into in some detail in 2009 and 10, where money from big donors kind of prompts this, this real examination of every act, how the campaigns are structured in states, how they approach persuasion, who their targets are. And what they come to see is that the, that the real hurdle to getting to majority in these states where it's on the ballot isn't that you have to convert opponents of uh, gay rights into supporters of gay marriage. That would be tough. But that fundamentally, the block is that there is a, you know, about a third of the country which now supports civil unions and that they had become, they had heard a, basically a decade's worth of national politicians, people like Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton say, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, but I think that gays and lesbians should have all the same rights and benefits as, as everybody else. And so the campaigns in 2012, the first 
time that they, the gay marriage side swept all of these ballot measures, their campaigns were structured to convince people who already supported civil unions who are fundamentally friendly to gay rights, the gay family should be recognized, but the gay, that civil unions were insufficient for gays and lesbians, that they wanted to be married for the same reasons as everybody else. And that helped sort of break a political political logjam. But I think you're right, Matt, there, this was a really open question for a while. And, and I, when I started working on this in 2011, as a, somebody who'd been a political reporter, but had not written about this topic before, my sort of assumption was that we were going to end up in some version of the kind of patchwork we have with, with the death penalty, where mm-hmm. in the you know early to mid 90s, it was the most divisive social issue in the United States. People lost elections because they were opposed to the death penalty. Uh, a fellow named Cuomo, who, whose family's in the news this week, comes to mind. Now, you know, basically half the states of the country have the death penalty, half the states of the country don't have the death penalty. Every few years, one state moves from one category to another, doesn't get a lot of attention. Politicians barely get asked about this anymore. It's never a dominant issue in campaigns. And we kind of live with the idea that like half the states have it, half the states don't, and we know where the federal government is in 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 that system. You know, I thought that it was possible that we could live with a decade or two of sort of a patchwork on marriage like that. And what happened ultimately gets back to this question of like a strategic mistake that opponents made was by making the Defense of Marriage Act something that the Supreme Court could address, they opened up a path to a national resolution of this and basically freed gay marriage supporters from having to go state by state. If they'd had to go state by state, there's no way that they would have gotten through the judiciary or the legislature in Alabama, right? Like that was just right. never going to be a path. And so they never actually had to because they could get Anthony Kennedy to, to, to strike down Alabama's ban um, with four of his colleagues. You know, I'm I'm thinking about my own experience with this issue and other hot button social issues when I was running and serving. I first ran in 2004, which we've talked about. I was elected in 06 and served from 07 to 11. And my views on gay rights, gay marriage, gun shifted pretty dramatically during from the time I started running to the time I ended my service in 2011. And my shift was a, let's just call it a, a leftward shift on on hot, on on hot all those hot button uh, social issues. And especially on, on gay rights and gay marriage, it shifted pretty quickly. I, was, I served on Bar- Barney Frank's committee. I was on financial services with Barney during the, the financial calamity that, that befell, befell the nation. And my views, my view, my, my views shifted. So, you know, you've t- we've taken, with your help, a, a very detailed and nuanced look at, at this, at the change around gay marriage. It's a profound, rapid uh, social change. What, what I find really fascinating here is the change in societal attitudes, unprecedented. And maybe there are lessons for activists and other social or legal causes. So are, are there lessons that can be drawn from this story that could be applied elsewhere and create, you know, the kind of tectonic social shifts that we really need right now? For I mean, for example, I'm thinking about 
climate change and where people are, where politicians are, what tribalism has done. And we need a galvanized, we need a galvanized humanity to deal with climate change in a way that so far has seemed elusive. What, what talk to us about the lessons. Well, I was just invited to solve climate change. The I should be easy. Listen, after taking on gay marriage, climate change is a piece of cake. There's no one we trust more. One seemingly small thing that that took place within these campaigns for for this gay marriage movement that I think is really instructive and you have yet to see replicated in other movements, but I think is worth considering is I write about the emergence of a group called Freedom to Marry, which starts in 2001 and, and, and is basically relaunched in this period in 2009 that we were just talking about, Matt. And it defines itself as a campaign. Its goal is to bring legal same-sex marriage to the 50 states in the District of Columbia. And it says it will put itself out of business once it's accomplished that. And this is very different than traditional interest groups that are built around either serving a constituency, like gays and lesbians, bisexuals, transgender people, or a bundle of issues. And so the Human Rights Campaign, the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, which are the sort of two big presences, they had this broad sort of set of priorities. And that ends up in a situation like what we were talking about before, which is like, they have to weigh, should we push on this employment non-discrimination thing or on marriage? And they have to make trade-offs. And I think there's a lot of criticism within these movements that these groups are too conservative or they're too focused on, on, on their access on Capitol Hill. But they have a lot of interest to serve, and they're kind of juggling where they can get progress and where they're not going to pick stupid fights and antagonize people. And they care about a lot of different constituencies. They're, they're, they're big donors, they're members, they're, they're ongoing relationships with elected officials. And so they make trade-offs. Freedom to Ray did not have to make any trade-offs. They said, we have one goal. And we're not going to go into this thinking, you know, they spent a lot of time lobbying the New Hampshire legislature in, in, in 2011, uh, 10 and 11 over, over marriage laws. And they weren't concerned with the fate of a whole bunch of other LGBT related issues or the Democratic Party for that matter in New Hampshire. That gave them, I think, a, a real focus that a lot of these movements don't have. You know, one, I'll try briefly, like, you know, we talk, we remember now a lot, the fact that Joe Biden came out and, and before Barack Obama had planned to announce a switch on marriage in May of 2012. Well, why was Joe Biden being asked on a random Sunday in May of 2012, his opponent, his position on gay marriage, which was not an issue that the administration had a bill it was facing or anything. It was because three months earlier, Freedom to Marry had started a petition drive to ultimately change the Democratic platform plank so that for the first time it would be pro-marriage equality. And so they got uh, a former DNC chairman to support it. And then eventually Antonio Villaraigosa, who's going to be the honorary chairman of the convention. And then Nancy Pelosi said that she would support it. And then all of a sudden, basically everybody in Democratic politics was being asked, do you think the party should change its position on this? Members of Congress, administration officials when they did interviews. And eventually this got to the point where the vice president was asked about it. And human rights campaign was never going to start a petition drive designed to put Nancy Pelosi on the spot on a hot button issue because they were trying to get, you know, Congress to, to, you know, move on on some of these other smaller things. They were never going to try to, you know, put the White House on the spot over a party platform because they were trying to get an executive order on uh, government contractor discrimination against gays and lesbians. And so one of the questions I think the other, you know, interest other people who are who want to see change in other issues, you mentioned guns and climate change, is the structure of our movement built for the goals we care about? And I do wonder 
if if handgun control or every town or some of these gun you know these sort of omnibus gun safety gun control groups would it, would we be in a different place if one of the if they were just focused on getting rid of ghost guns or just focused on get on on waiting periods and had discrete policy goals and weren't thinking about the kind of broad long term strategic framework would would instead of having you know sunrise movement try to broadly deal with climate change they just focused on one aspect of emissions mm. and you had lots of groups that, that had their own priorities and were not thinking about these sort of long-term trade-offs that it, that the existing interest group structures are are, are are sort of shaped around well that is really interesting and i want to say to our listeners you know you've taken us through just just a peek at some of the the nuance, the detail, and most important, the stories that are embedded in your book. I think your book is going to become a classic study in practical politics, not not just on this issue, but as you were just alluding to in your last answer there, in lessons learned for social change, attitudinal change, and, and, and how movements can achieve victories in American politics. So it's it's a fascinating read. It's it's really something that I commend to everyone. Sasha Eisenberg, on behalf of me and Paul, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics and just taking us through this absolutely fascinating story. Thanks for your kind work, Matt, and I really enjoy getting to spend some time with you guys. 